Talent Show at Audrey Hell High School in Charlotte, North Carolina, where the talent he displayed popularized this activity through a virus. I'm so excited to teach you something. Push the video, please. began. The world was taken over by competition, small and large, of people flipping bottles. There are videos that I got down this really bad rabbit hole of young and old people trying to flip bottles from all different backgrounds. Videos upon videos have flooded the World Wide Web, taken over classrooms and homes until teachers and parents yell, stop it, because it's so annoying. It's so annoying. All day long, this. I see, I can't do it, okay? I'll work on it. I even found an 11-minute TED Talk of him, Michael, describing how the flipping of bottles has flipped his world. The word flip. We're going to take a look at it. The good old Webster Dictionary described flip as this. The verb, to toss as to cause over in the air, like a flipping a coin, to buy and usually renovate, so to quickly resell it at a higher price, flip a house, to cause or pursued, persuade a witness to cooperate in persecuting a criminal case, so you have someone flip sides to give their, to persuade them, to do a somersault in the air, to change from one state position subject to another. Noun? Or adjective it is, yes. Flip the script to achieve an outcome or adopt an approach that is opposite to or completely different from what has happened or been done in the future or previously. So my question for you, has any information ever flipped your perspective upside down? Maybe you've discovered that a rumor you were hearing or spreading was actually completely made up. Did you learn something that disproved what you previously thought? I have two examples for you. So I have a friend, her name is Allie. For 12 years, she's Allie. I get this huge stack of Christmas cards the other day because we don't get mail, like maybe once a week. And I'm going through and I'm opening this one and I'm like, Ms. Alyssa blank. I'm like, what? I had no idea her name was Alyssa this whole time, for 12 years. So I sent her a text and I was like, do I even know you? Because I had no idea. It, it flipped my mind. For me, another one that has been currently flipping me is this book called The Outliers, The Story of Success by Malcolm Gladwell. My dis Can you turn that off? That's all I hear. Thank you. The disclaimer is I'm only on chapter three. So I don't know what he's, where he's completely going, but already my mind is blown. Malcolm in this book flips everything that I thought about success upside down. And I will give you an example. 
He goes on to say, I will argue that there is something profoundly wrong with the way we make sense of success. What is the question we always ask about the successful? We want to know what they're like, what kind of personalities they have, or how intelligent they are, or what kind of lifestyles they have, or what special talents they might have been born with. And we assume that it is those personal qualities that explain that, how that individual reached the top. In Outliers, I want to convince you that these kinds of personal explanations of success don't work. People don't rise from nothing. We do owe something to patronage. The people who stand before kings may look like they did it all by themselves, but in fact, they are invariably the beneficiaries of hidden advantages and extraordinary opportunities, cultural legacies that allow them to learn and work hard and make sense of the world in ways others cannot. So he goes on to explain how in how we divide up different things, like hockey. His first example is hockey. Do you know that 40% of all hockey players are born in January, February, and March? Because the definition or the, the cutoff is January. So we make these things in our culture that make someone a little bit better, and then they get more attention, and then all of a sudden they are exponentially better because of one small advantage that it started with. It blew my mind. I had no idea that these small things that we do, and he would say the same thing for education, it's blown my mind and changed my perspective. Reading Jesus' words in any of the Gospels has the same effect on people. People before Jesus, even during his first years of ministry, were under the assumption that God favored people who were very religious, seemed really holy, and had it all together. But Jesus spent time correcting their incorrect beliefs. So we're going to turn to Matthew 5, page 809. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, I can't do that. Can I? There we go. Okay. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him the Beatitudes. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, let me set the stage for you. Matthew's a tax collector. He's writing the book of Matthew. He is out to write the account of Jesus's life as the Savior or the Messiah. And he, right before in chapter 4, Jesus has called his disciples and said, you are to be my disciples. He called them from their life. They are following him and people are gathering around. And he sees this, so he sits on a mountain like a rabbi or a teacher and he starts teaching the people. These verses are known as the Beatitudes. This comes from a Latin word named, meaning blessed, happy, which is misleading in my mind. And you'll see why. These next words from Jesus can, are taken out of context all the time. People take these words and say, if you are poor, you will be happy. If you were this, you will be happy. Blessed actually means a state of well-being in relationship to God. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor here doesn't mean financially poor. Poor in spirit are people who recognize that without God, they're destitute. They know they can't be filled or blessed without God. Do we see our need for God? Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Here the mourning is the result of realizing that our sins need God's forgiveness. We are sorrowful for our sins. Do we feel sorrow for our sins? Verse 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Meek do not assert themselves over others to get their own agenda across. Meek means they are gentle, you are humble, considerate, and unassuming. This means people who are downtrodden and oppressed. Are you gentle and considerate for the downtrodden and oppressed? Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We're used to hearing this word righteousness and thinking that it's about us, our individual self, being right in the eyes of God. But I love how this commentary explains it. It says, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are the poor, the downtrodden, and oppressed, who are longing for the relief promised by God to his people. In this context of the Beatitudes, it is best understood as justice. In this instance, it is best to understand righteousness, not just our personal or moral righteousness, but societal or justice. Do we want justice for all people or just our people? What do we do to seek justice for the less fortunate? Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Giving compassion and kindness to others who are experiencing hardship. Mercy is the act of withholding punishment deserved. Do we make things harder for people going through hard times? Or do we act with mercy? Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The people hearing this message thought that they had to do rituals. They had to do these certain things to be pure. And Jesus said, you need to purify your heart to see God. When and how do you examine your own hearts to purify it so you can see God? Blessed, verse 9, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Making peace and putting the emphasis on peace and keeping it are the people who will be the children of God. It's kind of like Jesus telling them to love one another. Peace is a theme that Jesus talks about many, many times. Do you make peace in your interactions or do you break the peace? Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you who when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying to be a disciple in the first century and to be persecuted are the same thing. They are synonymous. People, or Jesus later warned the disciples that they, by following him, will actually, there will be opposition in their families and neighborhoods and authorities and in the world. Are you willing, are we willing to be persecuted for righteousness sake? And what does that look like for you? 
All of the blessedness of these promises are deep and inner spiritual richness. Not this like, oh, I'm happy, I'm good. Like the Pharisees and Sadducees and authorities possessed. He was calling his disciples in these verses to be to the next level, to be deeper. He was flipping everyone's perspective in the audience about themselves, the world, and God. He was flipping them completely upside down. And so it had me wondering, what did the people who heard these words come out of Jesus' mouth, how did they receive them? For some of the people listening, I have to imagine that they were often the people who were overlooked and undervalued. And for them, this was great news. They had been told for so long that they were less deserving of love, care, and attention than others, but now Jesus is flipping their view of themselves upside down. According to Jesus, they're loved, they're cared for, they're seen, and they have value. But there's another group of people who are listening, and I have to imagine that the religious, the powerful, the wealthy, this was real bad news for them. After all, if you've seen yourself as better and more valuable than everyone else, you don't want to be told that you're wrong. Jesus' message was for everyone who showed up in the crowd and for everyone who would hear this story later. To all of us, Jesus makes it very, very clear. God sees and values people who are often overlooked. So the other day I was looking for a a Christmas gift online on dicks, sporting goods. And me and David share an account because you share points and whatever. And I'm looking and it says previously viewed. And I'm like, what? A pickleball paddle is $215. This is ridiculous. Like what a waste of money. Like I can't even, okay? Did you know there's a pickleball frenzy happening around here? Well, now you're in the know. So anyways, so I'm telling um, Eric this, and he's like, 215, there's actually a 251. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is so stupid. No. So my friend, John Just, goes, Amanda, just because you don't play pickleball doesn't mean you don't like nice things. Amen, brother. I love clothes, you guys, and I would pay a lot of money for some clothes, right? Just because an item or a person may not be of value to me or to us right now does not mean it's not valuable. It has different value to different people because if I would have bought the pickleball paddle for David for $215, he'd be like, oh, yeah. But for me, that means nothing. And so there's another passage that tells about how God's people got this whole value thing incorrectly. And it's in the book of Micah. It's way before Jesus was on the scene. And these people followed God's laws. They sang worship songs to God and made offerings to him, but they lost track of the whole point of why they were doing it. They cared so much about earning their God's love that they forgot to love the people that God values. So in response, God was like, I need to tell my people that they need to get back on track. So he sent Micah to deliver this message. And I'm going to, it should be up there. Is it up there? She fell asleep. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, verse 8. 
He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Micah's message was a strong criticism for anyone who neglected, mistreated, or took advantage of others in God's name. When people weren't valuing others well, God used Micah to show them a new way and invited them to pursue justice for those who are mistreated. Be merciful to others rather than judgmental and humbly follow God's lead. It kind of sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. I think God's been trying to tell us humans, because we're real slow, for a really, really long time, that his kingdom is upside down. And it's not the most perfect, it's not the richest people, or the most frequent church attenders who are most valued by God. Jesus shows us that we are all valued, and to make that point, he puts special attention on the people who usually are undervalued. So if you're feeling less than valuable today, I hope you remember that Jesus loves you and you are part of this community. Or, or if you've been trying to prove your value to God or others, I hope you'll trust that you have nothing to prove. God loves you the way you are. And if you've been overlooking or hurting someone who Jesus values, I hope you'll make it right this week by choosing justice, mercy, and humility instead. Jesus flipped our assumptions about who God values. And so what are you going to do this week to show value to God's people? Let's pray.